0: Ephesians chapter 2 we're going to start talking a little bit about the vision that God has for uh, Christians in the city and the vision of God for the church and today I want to talk about the place of the church and the plan of God and our passage comes from Ephesians chapter 3 where Paul is talking to one of the churches that he had established one of the churches that, that he had established in one of the great cities of the Roman Empire and it was beleaguered and had... It's set of challenges, and yet he's reminding them here of who they are and what what God's call on their life is. Ephesians chapter 3, Paul, the apostle, writes this. He says, although I am less than least of the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and And through faith in him, we might approach God with freedom and with confidence. This is God's word for God's children this morning. One of the reasons we're here, one of the reasons that I'm in this business, one of the reasons we work so hard and put so much into planting churches is because what the Bible teaches is that the local church is the hope of the world. The church is not some abstract thing that's out there. The church is manifest in local bodies, local groups of people who who gather together and who commit themselves to one another and commit themselves to worshiping God and seeking God together. And what Paul says and what the New Testament says is that the church is God's plan A for the world and God has no plan B. The church is God's, God's tool for bringing his grace and bringing his kingdom to the world. And if the church doesn't work out, God doesn't have an alternative. God does not have a backup plan for that. The kingdom of God comes through the church. That's, this is what the New Testament teaches us. And, and the kingdom of God, the power of the kingdom of God, the grace of the kingdom of God, even the, the benefits of the kingdom of God come through the work of, the church, which is the, manife- the the visible manifestation of God's kingdom here and now. So that's the high goal that God has for the church that the New Testament teaches the church is all about, but the reality, unfortunately, is somewhat different. There was an, a column in the Washington Post last October where Chris, Christine Embla wrote, Millennials are leaving religion, especially Christianity, and they're not going back. And she went through the statistics that show that church attendance is declining, that, that people's self-professed uh, commitment to uh, Christianity in particular is declining, that, uh, that people's commitment to or plans to uh, be involved in church is declining. And by every, by every objective rubric right now in this moment in America today, the church is in trouble. And uh, and that, but but you know the thing is the church has been around for two thousand years, and over those two thousand years, the the attendance of the church, the power of the church, the influence of the church, even the purity of the church, the goodness of the church, all has always ebbed and flowed. And right now we might be in a cultural moment, we might be in a generational moment, where that is ebbing. But the church will remain. You know the. The thing that puts this into perspective is if you think of the history of Western civilizations for the last two thousand years, it's a story that can't be told without telling the story of the Church. Because almost every significant thing that's happened in Western civilization over over these last two thousand years has involved the Church, from the time of its founding about two thousand years ago. You know, the Church started in Jerusalem, and in one generation the church had spread throughout the whole Roman Empire in th- less than 300 years the emperor Constantine was converted in, in in 312 AD and you know there's a lot of debate about what that conversion meant and did he do that because it was politically expedient or because he was a true believer and and what what did that represent in the in the church but but uh you know the fact is that that was a seed change, and it led to the Roman Empire becoming the Holy Roman Empire and becoming a an empire of people that that were uh, led by people who who were believers and led by people who represented the church in various forms and so from 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 almost its inception, the church has had a formative impact on Western civilization as we know it and as we've inherited it. And there was a great schism in, in 1054 AD. That was really the first major schism of the church, the first major church split between the Western church and the Bishop of Rome and all the other bishops at that time. And, and that major, major schism led to a major change in, in how uh, Western culture was what Western culture organized itself and was a major global event. And then the Reformation in the 1500s was another major change in the church as the gospel was rediscovered by the reformers, but it was also a a change that led to a major transformation of culture as it it beckoned the beginning of the Enlightenment and the beginning of a a major change in, in culture as we know it. You think even of the founding of America. What drove the first colonialists to come to America? They were deeply religious people who were simply looking for a place where they could worship God according to their conscience. That's what drove the explorers to come here originally. And so all of Western civilization as we know it has always been impacted and shaped, or at least for the last 2,000 years, deeply shaped by the church. as we look at the world today, the church, as I mentioned, is sort of in this ebb phase in the West, in America, the church is struggling. Millennials are leaving the church, you know, along with, with uh, cereal and all those other things that, that millennials have ruined. They're, they're 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 now leaving the church. So, so what are you doing, Ben? Um, <laughs> but, but the reality is that the church has developed into a global force. It's not even about the West. Anymore, the continent of Africa now. There's this epic spiritual struggle going on between Islam and Christianity as as to who will have the soul of Africa in the future. And but the church is a vital force in Africa. It's a vital force in South America where the Pentecostal church is, continues to grow and develop. You know, in in China, there's there's a, a the house church movement is something that's hard to categorize. Cate- hard to catalog right now no one knows exactly how many people are involved in it but but I heard one estimate that it was upwards of 700 million Christians in the underground church in China today and that's a that's a tremendous amount of people That's twice as many people as are in America today and you think of Korea where Christianity and the church has become the predominant religion so today even as millennials are leaving the church, the church globally is growing and expanding and is a dynamic, world-changing force in ways that it's even hard to imagine sitting here in Jersey City. But that's, And the reason for that is what Paul makes clear here is that the church is God's plan for the world. The church is God's plan for the extension of his kingdom. The church is God's plan A, and there is no plan B. The church is, is God's tool for converting people to Christ. The church is God's, God's most effective tool for helping people grow in Christ. The church is God's most effective tool for organizing people to serve God in this world. Paul says, God's intent, verse 10, if you're following along, he says, his, God's intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. The church has its ups and downs, but over time and space, God is accomplishing his purpose through the church. Unfortunately, along the way, the church also gets in the way of God's purposes. I've also heard it said that the most legitimate reason, probably one of the most powerful reasons not to believe in Jesus, is because of Christians. One of the most powerful reasons not to follow God is if you look at the church and you see how dysfunctional it is, you see how messed up it is, you see how disorganized it is. You know, if you if you follow the news, it seems that the thing that the church is most famous for is is uh, sexual abuse can- scandals and then covering those up. It's famous for hypocrites and financial scandals and all of these other things that kind of come to the fore and. And, you know, as I've mentioned before, as I've been in Jersey City, I've met a lot of people who've grown up in the church who will never go to the church again because of something awful that happened to them or to their family or that they observed when they were going to church in their formative years. So the reality is, even though the church is God's plan at the same time, so often the church gets in God's way and the church becomes one of the. One, one of the most the best excuses people have for why they're not following following God you know it makes you think sometimes if if the church is god 's plan then God didn't make a very good plan because look at look at how what a mess the church is and another place you see this that, that makes you wonder is sometimes times in the places where where it seems like the church should have stepped up when the church was most needed, the voice of the church was most needed, it was most silent. You think of Germany in the 30s and 40s. Germany was basically a Christian nation, and then the Third Reich rose up, and Hitler was able to co-opt the church and get the church to fall in line, and, and, and so the church was impotent to stop him as, as he spread the, the, the vile and the hatred of, of Nazism in Germany. Or you think of the American church, over the years the American church and before the Civil War was silent largely especially in the south on the issue of slavery and then during the civil rights movement the the church was largely silent on the the significance of the the civil rights movement and and you know uh, another thing that struck me I remember in the 80s the white church in South Africa was complicit in apartheid and and embraced apartheid as a a way of governing a nation. So through the years, even in this century, I mean, I, I just pull out those three examples of opportunities when the church could have had a prophetic voice, could have made a difference, but it just didn't. It was silent and it stood by. And so that also has cost the church tremendous credibility over the years because... When there was a need for the church's voice, often the church's voice is not heard. Um, you know, I, I know even even in in my own experience. You know, I grew up in the church, and uh, and you know, God bless the people in the church. But I really didn't like it at the time. And when I was in junior high, I got kicked out of junior high Sunday school, and uh, and uh, so, anyways, it was it was a Difficult time for me, but but eventually I became a follower of Christ. But when I did, for a long time, I thought to myself, you know, I want to follow Christ, but I really am not interested in the church, and you know they'll just kick me out again, and I'll probably deserve it. So, but but what happened is over time you come to understand what I'm talking about now that the church is the tool that God uses, and then you know the irony of God and the justice of God and the vengeance of God. You know, I, I guess the the prayers of those. The prayers for vengeance of those uh, junior high Sunday school teachers was answered because I found myself on staff at a church, and lo and behold, there I am teaching junior high boys, and uh, wanting to kick them out of the class too. So, God's God's vengeance is surprising in our life. So, so be careful what kinds of problems you create for people. But what happened? What happens historically? You know, as the church sputters, as the church fails. You know, as the church sometimes is a victim of its own success or doesn't want to put into jeopardy the little fiefdoms that it's created, it loses all credibility. But then, you know, what happens is a prophetic voice arises or somebody goes back to the first principles of the church and rediscovers those principles that the church was to live by. You know, Nazi Germany, the church was completely co-opted, but there was a particular guy... Some of you know his name, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a theologian who who looked around at what was going on in Nazi Germany. He was actually out of the country as the Third Reich rose but then he he decided to go back to Germany and join the opposition. You know the story maybe he was he he joined a group that that was plotting to assassinate hitler and and got pretty close, but then they were caught and he was eventually executed for that initiative but But he became a leader and, of uh, a leader of people pushing the church to be more involved. He says in one place, Christianity stands or falls with its revolutionary protest against violence, arbitrariness, and the pride of power, and with its plea for the weak. Christians are doing too little to make these points clear. But when Christ calls us, he bids us come and die. So what happened was God sent to the church in Germany someone to remind them of what their gospel was all about and to to stand up against the Third Reich. The church in the American South, as I mentioned, it tolerated slavery. It didn't support the civil rights movement, but there were people within the church who rose up. and, And most famous among them was the pastor of a local church, Pastor Martin Luther King, and you might know the story. He was thrown into prison when he, was, when, when he was protesting in Birmingham, Alabama. And he wrote from prison a letter from a Birmingham jail. He wrote it to the people who, he, he wrote it to the clergy in Birmingham to ask them why they weren't helping him in the action they were taking, in the civil rights action. At one point in that letter he says, whenever the early Christians entered a town, the power structure got disturbed and immediately sought to convict them for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But they went on with the conviction that they were a colony of heaven, and they, that they had to obey God rather than men. They were small in number, but big in commitment, and they brought an end to the ancient evils like infanticide and gladiatorial conquest. And so he called the church, he said, He said, if you guys are really believers, if we're really in the legacy of the early church, then we've got to be making a difference in our world and the issues, and the issues that we are facing. And, you know, the same with the white church in South Africa. They, as they supported apartheid, as they accepted apartheid, as they operated within that, ultimately voices within the church rose up and said, this isn't right and this isn't what we ought to be doing. Bishop Desmond Tutu was, after apartheid ended, he was tasked with, the, with, with leading the Truth and Reconciliation Commission to keep South Africa from descending into civil war. And one of his slogans, he was he an Episcopalian clergyman, one of his slogans was, there will be no future without forgiveness. That our nation has no future, our nature, nation won't be able to hold together unless we discover and apply forgiveness to one another. See, the church can be embarrassingly dysfunctional and embarrassingly irrelevant and fail in all these different kinds of ways, but then the seeds of renewal of the church are always contained within it. Not by abandoning the church, not by discovering God elsewhere, but by leaders and by followers of Christ who go back to the core teachings of the church who go back to the gospel. Because the reason the church has endured all these years is because it has this self-renewing power. As the church strays, as the church becomes powerless, as the church becomes irrelevant, someone comes along and reads the Bible again. Someone comes along and reads the teachings of Jesus again. Someone comes along and reads the story of the early church and says, oh yeah, that's how we're supposed to be. We're supposed to make a difference in this world. We're supposed to really believe. We're supposed to really obey. We're supposed to really reach out to those who are in need. And that's what Bonhoeffer told the, the German church. That, that's what Martin Luther King tried to communicate to the clergy in Birmingham from a Birmingham jail. That's what Bishop Desmond Tutu tried to communicate to his countrymen in South Africa. Because when the church, is willing to forget all these things around it and point to Jesus again, then real renewal and real power flows forth from the church. You know, when I was an old man, you you read these stories and you see examples of the church being dysfunctional, you see the examples of the church not working quite right, and you say, well, I'll, I'll never be a part of a church like that, but now, you know, I'm an old man, and i planted a couple of churches, and, and you know they all, they all kind of pick up those traits along the way, but then you realize that the hope of the church is not a particular leader, isn't a particular style, isn't a particular doctrine, isn't a particular structure, but the hope of the church is getting back to our core principles, remembering the gospel, remembering who we are as God's children, and living that out in spite of our brokenness, in spite of our futility. Paul, the great apostle, but he recognizes his own weaknesses and his own shortcomings, and that's why he he says in this passage, even though I am less than the least of all of God's people, he recognizes that he's weak, he recognizes that he's deeply flawed, and yet he recognizes that the hope is there because of the grace that God has given him to preach, Preach to unbelievers the unsearchable riches of Christ, and that's the work of the church. And the church just rediscovers its power, and the church experiences its power when we take the focus off of ourselves, like Paul did when he, when he said, "I'm not." He didn't say, "I'm the great apostle." He said, "I am the less than the least of all God's people," but this grace has been given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And that's the power of the church when we point not when we point to ourselves, because that's always a mess, but when we are effective at pointing people to Jesus. That was the power of the church two thousand years ago, a thousand years ago, and that's the only power available to the church to today. You know the the statistics and the trends as i've mentioned at this moment in america and particularly with the coming generations point away from the church you know and and the highlight seems to be on the irrelevance of the church and the shortcomings of the church and the failures of the church live up to the high calling that god has given it but you read the book of acts you read the story of the first church 2000 years ago the church was even worse it was even smaller it was even more flawed it was even even more immature and yet god did something through that church that changed the world in one generation that church went from Jerusalem to covering the whole roman empire and our our church right here and right now god has called us to make a difference god has called us to make an impact but that doesn't come necessarily from us looking at ourselves and and wondering about the, the skills and the talents and the abilities we have. First and foremost, it comes from us looking at the unsearchable riches of Christ and allowing ourselves to be searched by the unsearchable riches of Christ and then figuring out how to communicate the unsearchable riches of Christ to a watching world. The most powerful force in the world today, the most powerful force in your life today will be your personal understanding, your personal embrace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, it tells, the gospel tells all of us that we're more broken, more flawed, more sinful than we'd ever been willing to admit. But because of Jesus, because Jesus died for us, because Jesus rose again from the dead for us, we're more loved and secure and have, can have more hope than we ever dared dream. And when we apply that message to ourselves and when we become a church of people who have applied that message to to one another and proclaim that message to one another, we we can become the most powerful force in the lives of those around us, in our neighborhood, in our city, and even in this world that God has put us in. Because I still believe that even with all its flaws, even with all of its issues, the local church, wherever it finds itself, is the hope of its community. The local church is the hope of its city. The local church is the hope of the world. And this local church and this local community can bring tremendous hope to the people God has, God has put around us and, and into the neighborhoods that God has put us in if we are faithful in preaching and sharing the unsearchable riches of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your great plan. It wouldn't be my plan because it it just seems to be so flawed. It seems to have so many fits and starts. It seems to be messy. But for some reason, you've decided to use us. You've decided to use the church. You've decided to use thousands and millions of churches around this world to minister to billions of Christians around the world. And uh, you've made us a small part of that. I pray that we will be faithful to share the unsearchable riches of Christ with our community. By your grace, we ask. Amen.